What is Ewan McGregor, Charlie Borman, Long Way Round, Long Way Down, Race to Dakar, and the Dakar Rally have in common? Well, that's Simon Pavey, of course, and that's just who we have on today to wrap up our off-road school episode. Simon's going to talk about his off-road motorcycle training center in Wales called Off-Road Skills. Also on the show today, we're going to have Don Hogan and Jeremy LeBreton from Alt-Rider, and they're going to be discussing their brand new pannier system. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Alt-Rider, manufacturing 100% American-made accessories and gear for your adventure touring motorcycle. You've seen Long Way Down and Long Way Round with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman. Well, who's behind that as far as training goes is Simon Pavey. And you probably know his name as well. We've had him on the show here before. Simon's here today to talk to us about his off-road training school, world-renowned and associated with BMW, accredited by BMW, born in Australia and now hailing from Wales in the UK. Simon has a massive private acreage set up for his off-road skills training centre, where we caught up with him after a hard day's work. Uh, Simon Pavey here. Uh, our company's called Off-Road Skills, and uh, I think uh, everybody knows pretty heavily associated with BMW. And uh, we're based in South Wales. It's sort of our, our, yeah, our headquarters is South Wales. Simon, for those who don't know your school, tell us what you do there and what it's all about. Yeah, we well we with our with our off road school we've been you know we've been running for seventeen years now, so I think you know we're definitely one of the the sort of uh, original adventure bike schools, and um, you know our our core of our school is about adventure bikes, but we've got a very uh, full program these days. As I say, we've been going for a long time, so we've got. A lot of uh, a lot of customers, a lot of loyal customers. We're sort of about a thousand people a year through the off-road school, and we've got a whole range of programs. You know, the core business or the core, you know, the core is what we call level one. That's our starting point, and that's you know that's what um, uh, gets people excited about riding off-road. And I think most people that come to us come to us, you know, initially because of just improving their general motorcycling skills. And it's very much about that. You know, you don't have to want to be someone that wants to spend the rest of your life off-road. It's it's about, yeah, just in, improving your your core motorcycle skills and, and having a little bit of fun with it and being able to do, you know, those lessons and those kind of programs in a really safe environment because you're not dealing with traffic and so on while you're learning uh but equally you know on top of that we have level two level three we also have a program with for want of a better word proper enduro bikes with uh we have a uh, husqvarna enduro bikes also and then we do we do uh adventure maintenance class which is a workshop based class you know basically again core sort of skills about around the spanners um, and then we do adventure travel training and, uh, um, then we, then we do some sort of first adventures, really. We do a two day adventure ride just here in Wales, which is, you know, fantastic couple of days out in the, in the mountains. But again, sort of, you know, exactly as I described it, really your first adventure. And then, um, and then we do loads of trips abroad. That's sort of a growing side for us, but again, always focused around, you know, training and helping people develop their skills. So, our biggest, most popular one is we do five-day trip um, in Portugal, which is just one of the most. You know, I've been very lucky to kind of ride and race all around the world, and 
it really is unbelievably one of the best places I've ever ridden to to ride you know, gravel roads and dirt roads and off road. It's really really incredible place. Uh, and that you know happens at the start. We've just come back from there from three and a half weeks down there, which has been amazing. Um, we'd also do one in Spain. We do something in Australia. Um, as well, we do both our school and a trip in Australia. Um, we're also this year, I think not far from you, we're, we're doing a full off-road school. As you probably know, we've done a little bit in Canada before, especially with Lawrence, with Lawrence Hacking and his Overland Adventure event. So we're actually going to take the school there this year. So we'll do a, our proper full level one, two-day off-road school uh, there. Um, yeah, so it's kind of very, very busy program nowadays. Um, well, it's sort of a one-stop shop, isn't it, for people? Because they come to you, they can start right at the very beginning and, and work right on through to doing an adventure trip. Um, but uh, you also have a, a massive private facility there at your base. Yeah, and, and, and there's sort of a couple of things that, you know, really work fantastically for us. And, and one is our venue. It's, you know, it's what drew us to Wales in the first place. And, and you know, what's kept me here for many, many years is we just really have this fantastic training facility. It's it's uh, around about 4,000 acres. Um, in fact, it's just grown a little bit. The landowner's just bought some land next door to his land, so it's even bigger than it, it's ever been before now, um, Yeah, which is pretty amazing. He took us up and, and took us around the, the extension, as it were, last week, and we were just there going, our jaws totally dropped. You know, we're like, wow, the best. <laughs> yeah, because last time I talked to you, you were saying, like, right now what you had was, like, the perfect training yeah. ground. And, and, and what's fantastic about it is exactly that. You know, if you kind of started with a clean sheet of paper and went, these are all the elements we need to, to do training really well, especially with big bikes, you know, because you need, you know, you need good grip with big bikes to, to teach people that have never ridden them before. If the first time someone rides a big bike is on a wet, grassy field, they'll go, no, I can't do it and go home, you know, no matter how good you are as an instructor. Mm. Um, so it, it's really fantastic. You know, it's kind of an all-weather venue in terms of the grip levels and and um and we've just got sort of every degree of difficulty of slope and uh hill and um you know we've got miles and miles of big wide gravel dirt roads right down to you know you can run an extreme enduro there on the same piece of ground so we've just got the full breadth of uh terrain to work with and 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 because it's so large as well, we can work with large groups, and it's another, it, it it's another thing that actually is a in a teaching environment works fantastically. You know, you always think it's the worst thing you want is a large group, but actually it's the opposite because what it gives us the ability to do is to have a lot of instructors and and to be able to you know to stream people really to put people in the right groups to enhance their learning and to you know to give the best opportunity for everyone to learn at their own pace so you know typically a full school for us is is 32 customers but then we've got five or six instructors and we're able to you know put the right people with the right people to to get the most out of their learning and you know we're also very much you know we you know we believe in a lot of our ethos is about teaching and and all our instructors aren't just people that have raced motorbikes at a high level. They're, they're always people that have also got a background in some other discipline in instructing or coaching uh, or teaching, you know, not, not just uh, oh, I've taught me a few of my mates to ride a motorbike, therefore I'm a motorcycle instructor. You know, and we're, we're very heavy on that, really strict criteria to come and work here. And, and, you know, hence our instructors are literally coming from all over 
the country to, to you know we're not just using people from around the corner we you know it's really really uh tough for us to find the right people and we work very hard at it and then we also run our own uh our own instructor training program so you know everybody's at the same level and the same standard as a as an instructor as well and and all our curriculums are all our courses you know they 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 absolutely run to a curriculum and you know it doesn't mean that when you you've got your group of 32 people and some people already have some experience or or you know uh are at a different level it doesn't mean they can't you know do those lessons in a more challenging environment or the pace can be a little bit higher in terms of moving through the lessons but absolutely everyone will cover those same lessons you know that and and the same lesson plan and you know therefore go through all the same key skills and the same core techniques to the same standard you know because as i say all the instructors are have been trained to work and and to understand the mentality of how we work and you know we we very much believe in all those ethoses and i think that's what's stood us in really good stead over 17 years now and you know built the reputation that we've got and and the returning customer base that we've got because you know we we believe in the the process and we believe in the standards and we work very hard to always deliver the same product to everybody you know regardless of whether they turn up on the first the first school in 2015 or the last one I remember you mentioning that to me um, uh, when we spoke before that your wife is a teacher and and you really work to get that into your training program, which is what exactly what you're saying right now. And I, I think it's probably really in, important for someone to consider when they're considering taking a course with a company that they want to look at and make sure that it's really set up um, from a teaching perspective. Because like you said, you, you may know how to ride, but I mean, we all know this. You can know something really well, but to teach it is another thing. There's certain ways to get people to understand things that really have to be worked through. I mean, it's, it's not something you're just going to wing it. And and the same as a you know as an instructor, if you're not constantly trying to understand the challenges of teaching, and if you know if someone if someone doesn't get it in your in your group or in your class, it's not it's not them that's got the problem. It's you that's got the problem with how you've worked out uh, how to you know how to help them to be able to to learn the skill. Every everybody's capable of learning to to ride a motorcycle, or like capable of learning to ride a motorcycle off road. Absolutely, everybody can. You know. Uh, it's just a case of we all, you know, we all learn in different ways, don't we? Everybody's got their own personality and their own style in how they absorb information, and it's kind of our job to enable that, really. And I, I think, you know, again, you know, we really, we, we really work very hard to find the right people to work here, and um, and you know, what we then find is that everyone that works here, you know, for, from myself right through to, you know, we've got people that have been with us instructing for. 12 years and we've got others that have only been here for two years but everybody everybody is always after every single school kind of analyzing as a team you know what what's going on and and always trying to improve and always trying to get better as an instructor you know I think you know myself especially you know if you if you turn around and go I've been doing this for 15 years I'm a really good instructor then you no longer are you know (laughs) you've got to like the same as with your writing if you're not sort of constantly striving to become better and learn more about people then i don't think you're doing a good job and and that's you know that's what and i'm not saying we're the only school that does that or does that well there's definitely other people out there um but yeah i think as a you know as a as a as a listener um 
you, you know, it's no different to choosing a builder, is it? You need to go and choose uh, choose uh, people with the reputation, and they've usually got the reputation because they do work hard at getting those things right. And you know, for every every person out there that's you know got that kind of mindset and is trying to do a really good job as a as an off road school, that unfortunately, like every industry, there's definitely those out out there that are just uh, um, you know, doing it because they want to ride a motorbike, and and if you want to, if you're about riding a motorbike, then it's not the right job for you. You know, it, you're not there to ride for yourself. You're there to, to help other people to enjoy the sport that we all love. Who should come to your school or any school for that matter? Everybody. <laughs> the whole world. Boy, that was just too easy. <laughs> it was far too easy. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of question was that All right, let's, let's... <laughs> there's quite clearly no other sport that you should be passionate about in the world throw the football away get yourself a motorcycle start enjoying life yeah well i agree with you there <laughs> but how about how about age now i ask this because pretty soon i'm gonna be 50 and and now I'm, like I said to you, I'm sitting here with a, a broken wrist and it makes me, well, my sister said to me, why don't you stop acting like a 24-year-old and realize you're getting old? <laughs> when am I too old for this? Do you, do you, know, do you know what? I, I think, you know, we, we all live in a great age where that mindset is changing, I think. And, we you know, we really see it all the time with people, are, you know, still enjoying life for, for as long as they can and i think absolutely you should and you know whatever we do in life has some risk attached to it there's no question um but yeah i mean if you if you're not doing that what are you going to do and it, it kind of is is a love-hate thing i have going on we you know we've it's a, another beautiful part of doing our job is that we get to see a lot of people that are, you know, trying very hard to continue to enjoy their life for long into the twilight years, and I hope I'm one of them. Um, you know, we've definitely had, we've had from, uh, you know, from 19 to 74 on the school um, here, mm. and, you know, we, we, we're we regularly getting people in their 50s and 60s all the time on the school, and, you know, 70s is a, a little bit less, but, you know, we're getting a, we have a spattering of them every year for sure, and as I say. 74 i think is is um the oldest one at the moment um and and it's beautiful you know when you see those those people doing that and yeah i yeah on the other side of it you know we, we're doing the bike shows uh, over the winter here and there's a few times when people come up to you at the show and say exactly that you know oh, I'm, I'm in my 40s i'm too old to go off road and you're like hey well <laughs> we're in trouble here well past I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We, we, everybody's different, and I think you've got to, you know, in life you've got to value your health when you've got it because, you know, for any of us, we don't know what's next or what's around the corner. So, well, you've still got health. Make the most of it and use it. You know, whatever you. We we just joked in we about only everyone should only ever be into motorcycling, but whatever you're into, you know, be into it really. Yeah, that's true. Don't, you know, it's so easy, you know, even like I just put you off for half an hour because I was doing some boring office stuff that needs to be done. We've all got a little bit of that in our life. And yeah, you've got to force yourself to keep doing the awesome stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To get out there and do it. How does the school work exactly? Somebody comes and signs up. What happens? Um, It's pretty easy. We like to make it easy for for um, you guys. That, that's, you know, that's definitely what we're all about. You 
you you pay your money and sign up and you get your little bit of paper that says turn up here at nine o'clock and and then you know we take care of everything really once you once you're here um then that's what we like to do is make all that stuff easy come here and you sign on and you get your motorbike and with our school as well we we supply all the bikes so it's a kind of turnkey thing you don't turn up on your own bike you turn up and ride our bikes on off-road tires set up you know for off-road and take you through the lessons and you know again i think especially for level one you know there's no doubt understandably everyone turns up you know nervous in the morning and worried but you know we really do go step by step in the morning and you know take it take it at a a, a pace that um alleviates the nerves and helps everyone to be comfortable and you know you can only start to learn and build your confidence once you get to that comfortable place and you know i guess like a lot of uh sort of um adventure sports for want of a better phrase there's always points where you know there is going to be a daunting scary nervous bit but i think that's where the good instruction comes because you know the experienced good instructor we can quite often see when someone's safe and ready to do something a little bit before they can and you know sometimes it's about nurturing and encouraging people through that yeah you know what we're definitely about is we've got lesson plan um and we take you through it but by the same token it's very important that you're having fun while you're doing it and because uh, we've got the fantastic venue it's easy to make it fun as well as a, a learning experience and you know, by the end of the two days everybody's um everybody's definitely ridden as much as they're ready to ride in you know at the level they're at and we we try to make the whole thing a an experience as well you know we all have dinner together at the end of the first evening so it's a you know it's a social thing as well and um nice. yeah it's you know people are spending their fun holiday money aren't they so they're coming to learn but also they're coming to have a great time around motorbikes so yeah yeah, that's a good point. I never thought of before. Is that it is sort of like a holiday, isn't it? I mean, you sign up for something like this. It's a, it's yeah. an outing as well as a, a lesson. Yeah, totally, it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that, that's of course, that's what it should be about. Because yeah, we ride motorbikes to enjoy it, don't we? And if the whole thing just becomes a a chore, then you stop doing it. So yeah, it's absolutely. And you know, that's where people come and they do the level one with us, and sometimes one of the other levels, and then. You know, with the, the trips, for example, especially Portugal, that, you know, it's absolutely about having a holiday. And as I say, it's, it's also the way we do it. We always like people to be improving and learning and enjoy, you know, the more you, the more you learn about riding a motorcycle and the more competent you become, I feel, the more you enjoy your motorcycling because you relax into it. You know? What kind of improvements would somebody expect to, to see in themselves when they come out to take a course? It's, it, it is so impossible to explain that because even after all these years, it blows my mind how far people can go from zero in two days and how what they can achieve and what they can do. And I can promise you every single weekend, single two-day course we take people on, if we, if we took you to what you will be able to do at the end of the two days, you will go say something quote to me and get back in your car and drive home you do leave after two days you know going from scared of a gravel driveway if that's your level you know obviously some people have some experience when they start to mm. after two days going yeah i can handle a bike off road you know and, and everyone's different you know some people go away and they can really ride after two days but everybody goes away totally changed it's um yeah it's incredible 
it's really incredible. I have to pinch myself all the time when you, you see it. And, and, you know, that's why it's, it's a beautiful experience on both sides, both as the student and as a, as an instructor, because it's just, yeah, super rewarding when you see people go from that nervous thing to, wow, I want more of this and I can do it. What are the skills that you find that people lack the most and, and learn best by taking your classes? Uh, the, the confidence, confidence is, it, it's all about confidence and, you know, confidence comes with competence. It's sort of a nice little circle there, really. When you, when you see what's possible and then you feel what's possible, then your confidence goes up and you get a little bit of understanding about the next skill set. And when you understand it, you, you kind of have the confidence to try it and then you try it and you can do it and your confidence goes up a bit more and that then relaxes your mind and brain and frees you up to think about the next skill set um so it's just a nice little cycle there and that, that that's why we've kind of got our lesson plan and and each lesson builds on the next one so you do a lesson and then after that lesson you have a little bit of mental relaxation because you go and ride some areas where you're putting that lesson into practice so it sort of confirms it in your brain that you can now do that bit uh, and then you're a little bit more relaxed and a little bit less stressed. And, and with that, as I say, the confidence comes and, and then you can put the next piece into the pie, you know, and, and all those pieces kind of get put in there. And, and then suddenly, you know, it, it sort of happens for us that the first day, um, there's so much information and so many lessons and so many of those little bits where you're kind of overcoming your, your inbuilt fears and, and the confidence is growing it's it's quite a heavy day the first day and then the second day all those little pieces suddenly fit together and sometime during the morning of the second day suddenly dawns on you that you're doing it <laughs> um but you know there's a lot of mechanical pieces to that and people always you know always asking me about that and it's easy to say oh you know standing position or covering the controls with two fingers or all those kind of mechanical things but really that's not what it's about really it's about confidence and um, you, you know, that's the biggest thing. And I think that's why it helps with you back into your general motorcycling. Again, you can talk about, oh, I'm not scared of the back, you know, the wheels moving around a bit now because I've had it happen on a gravel road and that helps me in my road riding. All those mechanical things are true. But underlying all that, it, it's totally about building confidence. And, you know, to, to get that confidence, you need a little bit of understanding and a little bit of competence little bit of seeing what's possible from someone else that can do that. And sometimes that comes from your instructor, but equally it comes from being in a, you know, in a peer group as well of other people that are learning that same skill set. You know, we found that a lot that, you know, for, there, there is for some people, we do one-to-one -one as well. And for some people that's really nice, but a lot of the time, actually, especially at the start and level one, um, you know, that, that sort of peer group of working with a small group of people actually helps the whole process because, you know, when you see an instructor do something, you sort of expect that they can do it. Whereas if you see one of your peers overcome their little challenge in their mind and do it, and then you go, oh, actually, yeah, what the instructor says, they did that and it worked mm -hmm. and they know better than me, you know. Yeah, and and I guess what it does, is we always have this fear of of being in a crowd, you know, being and making a fool of ourselves. But really, what you're saying is you're you're probably learning more from watching the other people than you would if they weren't there. Yeah, it absolutely works, and yeah, I, I don't think it works if you're in a crowd of forty people and you feel you're the weakest person. But you know that that's why, as I say, work the way we've got it, where 
we've kind of able to have 30 people but then break it down and you end up you know with six or seven people that are you perceive as sort of similar to you then it absolutely works being in that that group um and you know sometimes you're the top of the group and sometimes you're the one struggling and and the rapport builds you know we've got all these nice little lessons at the start that break the ice and you know build the confidence a little bit that you know again they're just bike handling stuff they're not necessarily riding you haven't got fear just moving the bike around and you know all the little tricks that we've learned over the years to to make the bike feel smaller um and and you know during that period you're already sort of starting to make make friends with other people in the group so i heard you say it one other time and i think i've read it where you've written it somewhere about having confidence and i can't tell you how many times that comes into my head when i'm doing something that's technical that's sort of pushing my abilities a little bit and i'm thinking i, I know i can do this thing and then that simon pavey thing will pop in my head well it's, it's a lot of it is confidence here so then i'll go ahead with confidence and i'm amazed at what that does for me and i have yet to take your course which i do plan to do perhaps when you're here in Canada. But um, that little bit of information has done so much for me. So is it is it all hands-on training or is there, there classroom work as well, you know, like a driving course? No, that, that, no, it's all it's all definitely experiential. You know, you've got, I think with a motorcycle, you have to, you know, we, we, we stand there and we do the theory bit, but we have to do it around the motorbike and then, you know, you have to do the theory and then you have to get on the bike and, and ride it. You know, I think if you're, you're talking about lines on a racetrack you can do it on a blackboard a little bit but it's still it's still you've got to you know to get your head around riding a motorcycle you've got to do it so it's it's all on the mountain out in the outdoors the only classroom stuff we do is when we do our adventure maintenance class which is in a workshop do you cover bike extraction and hand maneuvering, you know, wrestling the bike through a technical area i do see some pictures on your website when i was looking at it before of of doing just that yeah, we 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 do. Um, I mean, those two particular lessons kind of sit in our adventure travel training course because the adventure travel training that we do. So the normal curriculum or the normal process for people, if you just want to get better and better at riding an adventure bike, is is definitely like level one, level two, level three. You know, that makes total sense. Um, but we do this other curriculum now, which we call adventure travel training, and and it's a little bit more aimed at. Um, I suppose the person is not really desperately wanting to get better at, at riding. Um, you know, they've done enough that they're happy to go down the gravel roads, you sort of level one stuff. Uh, and they're thinking about going off on a big trip. And we do those lessons that are things that we say or we see is you don't really need more riding skill than you've got to be able to do them. You just need a little bit of knowledge there. They're not as uh, difficult or as daunting as you think they're going to be. And they're good examples of that. So if you're stuck, how do you get unstuck? Absolutely. Don't need to be a riding god to do that. You just need a few little tricks. And similarly, if you get to a hill, whatever yeah. level you're at, if you get to a hill that you're a little bit too scared of or daunting or dangerous, how do you get down it without riding the bike down it? So, you know, different for every person, but the technique of when the hill's past your riding level is the same. Um, and then towing, you know, though towing again is you actually don't need to be able to ride that well to tow. It's a, it's a, it sort of looks more scary and more daunting than it actually is. A few little tips and tricks there, and anyone can tow be towed. So it, that that they're the sort of lessons that we put in that course really. So they, as I say, they're about not about necessarily getting better as a rider. They're about um, getting yourself out of trouble, I guess. <laughs> 
if you're on a trip. Uh, so, yeah, so we do all that stuff and it sits in, in that course. Having said that, sometimes those lessons by accident fall into a level three, especially, or an enduro course. What about the women-only training? I noticed you have a, a course up there for women-only. What, what makes that different? Um, well, again, again, we you know, it's just absolutely exactly the same curriculum as level one. Um, but, you know, the reason for us to do it is because unfortunately our industry and our sport is uh, very very male dominated and sometimes to come into that environment if there's 31 blokes and and just you might be daunting for for some you know some women it, it's not a problem or a challenge to them but for some it is and uh so you know that course is designed to be a way in the door without being daunting really um or being less daunting i suppose and a little bit more supportive so we've got um uh jenny that works for us who's you know she's fantastic she's she's five foot two rides a gs adventure and she's just a very calm and quiet person and she's not someone that's been you know uh riding off-road all her life either so um she's kind of come to it from more from the teaching side and so she's super supportive and super confidence inspiring she's got massive following here actually both, uh, both amongst the, the, the women and the guys because the guys come here and see little Jenny and think they're getting the Duff instructor and then she breaks the ice by picking up her GSA with a full tank of gas when she's five foot two and weighs about, I don't know, 50 kilos or something ridiculous, tiny little <laughs> thing and she can pick up a GSA because she just does the stuff that we say, you know, technique, not power. Um, mm-hmm. And it changes the whole model very quickly. And as I say, yeah, she's just really good at building that confidence and inspiring people. And it's exactly the same curriculum as level one, but without all the testosterone. So sometimes the pace is maybe a, a little bit slower. And sometimes we do a little bit more on the actual bike handling stuff because the technique becomes important if you're a bit smaller and not so strong which is again, not always the case with women, but you know, more often than not. And, and then, you know, the idea is, is that you come and do the women's only group. And then again, the confidence is then there that the next time you're happy that you're going to be able to join in the, you know, the regular groups and do your, do your level one again with a mixed group or, or, you know, the advanced group or your level two or whatever in the, the mixed environment. And because I, you know, ironically over the years, we found that actually the level, the level is exactly the same. You know, if you've got 20 women here, you will have the, you know, the person that stands out and is really confident. I mean, I, I've had mixed courses where the strongest person on the whole course is, has been a woman. Um, and, you know, equally you'll get most people sat in the middle of a course somewhere and you'll definitely, you know, you'll get, you know, if you've got that whole breadth, if you've just got 20 women, the, the, the mix of abilities will end up the same as if you've got 20 guys. But where that unravels is when you turn up here and there's 20 guys and there's one woman and the woman is the, woman is the least confident person there. It, you know, when that happens, it's unfortunately, you know, it stands out more and makes them feel more conscious of their situation. And, and that's what that course allows, really, is it just allows that, sort of takes that problem away. Anything else to add, Simon? Just like to see people getting out there and riding. And I suppose the thing I'd really like to mention again in in your case is that we're definitely going to be at Lawrence Hacking's Overland Adventure uh, Rally. Right, that's July uh, 3rd through 5th, 2015, uh, Lawrence Hacking's Overland Adventure Rally in Ontario at uh, Campbellville, so near Toronto. Um, So his events then, so we'll be running a 
a school in the probably the Thursday and Friday beforehand leading up to it. So we do we do the school on the Thursday Friday and then um, you know we'll ride with everyone on the Saturday and then do a Dakar talk on the Saturday night and yeah it should be a fantastic weekend really. Okay, Simon, the last word on why someone should consider going for some off-road training. Yeah, I think, you know, just back to what I said earlier, for, for me, the reason to do training is to end up enjoying your riding more, um, you know, feeling safer, moving more confident and enjoying it, you know. Um, and I think the actual experience of doing the training's fun in itself. And um, you know, I always say to people, we always, we all, I totally get it, we all love having a bit of bling on our bikes and spending money on our toys, but if you want to get better at Riding a motorcycle, bit of training, more fuel, more tires. That's all you need. So spend money on that stuff and you'll enjoy it more. Well, that makes a lot of sense and it could be applied to almost any discipline. You see people buying all the Farkles and the latest, greatest gear and then not actually getting out there and using it. So clearly it's important. Pump some fuel into the bike, get some tires on it and ride. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, that's, that's it. Come ride. Okay. Ride. Ride more. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Simon. No probs. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. I've been speaking with Simon Pavey from Off-Road Skills in the UK. You can find out more about Simon and his off-road school at www.offroadskills.com. And of course, as with all of our episodes, you can drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the show, and you'll see the show notes there with the links to all the websites. Now, I've professed my love to soft luggage many times before. Not that I'm against hard luggage, but I really have a soft spot. No pun intended. No, seriously, that was a pun intended. I have a soft spot for soft luggage. I love it. It does great for me, especially every time I drop my bike, it helps absorb that shock. And uh, if you get a tough enough set of bags, then you, uh, you're in luck because you've got a bit of a cushion there as well. Now, before you go and tell me you put your computer in there and everything, just forget about that right now. What I'm more interested in is Altrider's brand new pannier system, which I think is really cool. So we're going to talk with Don Hogan and Jeremy LeBreton from Altrider in Seattle, Washington. Jeremy and Don, we're going to talk about soft panniers today, in particular your new Hemisphere line. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about Altrider itself. Altrider really emanated out of what became an obvious opportunity uh, as well as a need. In the U.S. marketplace, there really was no company uh, designing adventure, touring hard parts uh, before Altrider had launched. And while Europe is the driver and and definitely a much larger marketplace for these adventure touring bikes, and quite frankly, a lot of very cool bikes that do not get imported into America due to our volume and the cost to homologate these bikes, uh, the drawback to Europe is that it's completely verboten, uh, illegal to ride off-road. So uh, until you get out to Romania or all the way down to Africa, now sure there's some places in Italy and Spain you can ride illegally if you're with a local and you know what you're doing. But the bikes just never really got the exposure and the abuse and the real world riding that 
uh, America really offers right outside of our back door, or North America, I should say, because Canada has some of the the, the most wildest and extreme uh, enduro riders for sure. And and I say that with the caveat, of course, real world travelers. There's many many of them uh, coming out of Europe, but the reality is it's a very small percentage of the overall user base. And so, coming from the enduro world as well as looking at what was on the market, uh, it became very clear that I think we could make a um, just a better, more well thought. Sometimes, oft, oftentimes, I just said uh, we make it right. I'd love to say we're we're brilliant uh, engineers here, but a lot of it is just down to using the correct material choice, the correct uh, fasteners, and the uh, the appropriate manufacturing uh, technology or or methodologies. So uh, that's kind of how we started. Was a, I think there was a, a market need as well as it demonstrated or had the potential for a real opportunity to start a business. So Alt-Rider starts out making hard parts, obviously extremely well, um, because they're very popular. And then you decide to move into soft luggage. How did that come about? Uh, a handful of a handful of ways. Yes, we started off doing the hard parts, and that's a very difficult business proposition because now you're making a skid plate for a very limited model run. In 2013 to 2015, BMW R1200GS, because the manufacturer, BMW, has a sub-supplier whether it's the front suspension or the tail lever or somebody that they make a, a, a mid-year production change. And so you've got a lot of tooling and costs that are driven for a very limited application. So it became clear after we built the reputation and the, the strength of Alt-Rider, and I appreciate what you said because it is very critical to the whole business plan, was to really do things right. And once we had a brand, then that would allow us to do a lot more modular things. And you'll start to see Alt-Rider really... Uh, expanding on its brand into mo- more modular options um, because that, that'll allow us to, to do a lot more things from a business perspective. And so luggage is a great uh, example where now we can have uh, one or three systems fit across a much wider branch. But the other reality was we had so many people constantly asking us. And and actually at this time, we, we have the Pioneer systems in their later stages of development. It's been a long road. Um, they definitely won't be done until the end of this year. But uh, a lot of this really just came out of, as we looked at what are the next steps, it was being driven from the marketplace, what what people were asking for. I find it pretty exciting to see the because the Alt-Rider quality coming into soft panniers is, is great because I'm a big fan of soft luggage. I think there's a huge advantages there. Um, and, um, and for my riding style, I, I like it in particular. Um, tell us a little bit about what you have for soft luggage. Don, why don't you introduce the three pieces? Sure, yeah. So right now in the, it's called our Hemisphere line. And uh, if you look at the saddlebag, you can easily see why it's called the Hemisphere line. Also, it's you know kind of uh, an allusion to world travel. We have three products. We have the saddlebag product, which is really, um, it's more of an enduro kind of product, although it, it's absolutely suitable to put on the bigger bikes, especially things like I see guys running on like the 1190s and stuff like that. What that product is, is it's kind of a, it's a large dry bag that we kind of call the pants and it's removable from the holster, which is always strapped down to the bike. It's incredibly stable. It, uh, it mounts in, it's kind of a triangular mounting system. So it's, it's very, very stable. Then we have the soft panniers, which are really geared towards the larger bikes. Although again, if you have a hoop rack system, you can mount them on any bike. Uh, and that's a combined 120 liters of capacity. Again, 100% waterproof and dustproof. And then we also have the Hemisphere tank bag, uh, which is our first entry into the tank bag arena. 
And it's again, waterproof. It has a, a roll down dry bag integrated into the design and has a, a waterproof map pocket as well. Well, let's talk about that tank bag for a minute. Can you explain that a little bit more in detail? Uh, sure. So it is constructed of the same materials as the rest of the product line, which is an 18 ounce or 14 ounce where applicable tarp material, as well as 1050 denier ballistic nylon. The outer of this thing is incredibly durable. Uh, it mounts to a harness with a U-zip, a large number 10 YKK racket coil type zipper. Basically, it's a self-healing zipper. It's the most durable kind of zipper you can put on luggage. It's a U-type zipper, and what that allows you to do is you can zip it halfway, flip the tank bag to the right side, and it allows you to get access to your fuel cap if your fuel cap is indeed on the tank. Also, when you open the thing, you have one-hand access to the zipper, which lets you get into the lid pocket to put your map in there. Additionally, in the main compartment, there's a roll-down 400 denier rip-stop nylon that's coated so it's waterproof, and it's got a triple layer of PU coating that allows it its waterproofness. So you can put your sensitive items in there. Oh, it also has Velcro on the inside, so you can drop dividers in or pull them out just to help compartmentalize your packing in the tank bag. And you roll that dry bag down. It clips to itself, kind of like your typical roll-down dry bag. And then you close the lid and everything in there is protected. Totally waterproof. It's a very compact looking, very um, uh, almost aerodynamic looking bag. Is there a reason that you didn't go with outside pockets on it? Absolutely. Uh, there is one very small mesh stash pocket on the outside, but that's literally meant for the smallest of items. And really, the idea there is, again, ergonomics. Uh, all of, As Jeremy was saying earlier, all of this stuff came out of the enduro world. And so ergonomics, uh, freedom of movement, being able to get up over the tank and get your knees up onto the tank, um, just being able to, uh, you know, have proper uh, riding and seating position and freedom to move. So that's really why it's shaped the way it is. It doesn't have anything to do with aerodynamics. See, I really like this because I think that's one of the things we run into when we're looking for tank bags. Sometimes you'll see guys with massive tank bags and it's not necessarily about storage. I mean, people are, are, are looking at it as if maybe it's a storage area. The problem is that's your riding area. So when you stand up, if you've got a bag that's pushing you backwards, you can't get it in a proper position to get your, your weight forward over the pegs. Whereas if you stay with a reasonable size bag, you've got some storage, just your things that you need to access immediately without having excessive storage. You're not putting your socks and, you know, and all your clothes and your food in there. You'll notice that the rear wall of the bag has that tapered forward. And it seems very simple, but um, a lot of time was spent so that you really, just as you're speaking of, hey, when I'm riding in a stand-up position or want to get even sit down on street scenarios where I want to get my weight over the front wheel, it really uh, allows for a very non-intrusive design. Well, Don, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems that uh, design restraint, if I could say it that way, is a part of this as well, because it's so easy to sew loops on everywhere. I'll give you an idea. The MEC or REI, some of the backpacks, they sew loops on it, and just loop after loop where you can hook stuff on. And it's great, but do you really need all that loopage on there? Or if we went sort of overboard? So it's almost like you guys have restrained yourselves a little bit, saying, no, no, let's keep this practical. Yes, absolutely. Uh, if you want a good example of design restraint, just look at any Apple product. Um, it's, it is absolutely good design is an exercise in simplifying and, and restraint. I think that's a good observation on your part. Yeah, Jim, great observation on your part. What ends up happening is becoming a designer and then having access to prototypes and suppliers and all of the features, right? Because these, these guys with the waterproof zippers and the different clips and holy cow, it's like being in Christmas. So then it becomes even harder to have that restraint um, to not 
feature laden the product, which starts to drive costs, but it, it starts to create confusion. And, and now the product never gets used the way the designer originally intended because it's confusing. What are the advantages from your perspective of soft luggage over hard luggage? One of the things I was actually going to mention just onto the, to the tank bag, and then it falls suit on all of our soft luggage solutions. We talked about having a, a fairly compact design, not a very uh, bulbous, huge system. But there's always an emergency scenario where the guy you're riding with has had a failure and you guys are in a scenario where you need to carry uh, extra luggage. Because of the roll down tops to all three of these systems, they allow for some very uh, responsive sizes, right? So if I expand my roll down all the way up to its top, it allows me anywhere from three to seven inches more capacity. Now, granted, that's not best operating uh, procedures, but it gives me that emergency scenario. So one of the things um, to answer you directly would be the responsiveness uh, of the design that, that soft luggage allows for. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And it's one I hadn't thought of before, because like you're saying, it's, it may not be rolled up properly. It may not even seal at that point, but at least you were able to get it in to get through whatever sort of emergency you had or whatever situation you had that you wanted to overcome. What about when it comes to dropping the bike? Certainly, <laughs> there are some of us who might have dropped our bike once or twice. Absolutely. So I'll just touch base on this and then have Don finished. But um not not only if uh, it's when they're going to crash. Look, that's how we design all our hard parts. So that's why our crash bars are made out of stainless steel. They're called crash bars. And so after I crash my bike, that's the whole goal is I want to be able to continue and finish my ride. Uh, no crying, uh, no broken bike. Everything keeps going on. So after I crash, I don't want my bars to be rusty two and a half weeks later because I'm actually using my product. Uh, so the same holds true with the soft luggage. You'll notice the differing materials usage, and that's one of the advantages in the soft luggage system. And too, Jim, uh, before I go back to that, I'll fully agree that I don't think there's one is better than the other. It's just for application or end user, and hence why we are doing the hard luggage systems as well. But back to the soft luggage, it allows for us to use a multitude of different materials where that really doesn't lend itself with the hard luggage systems. You're essentially stuck to that same aluminum box and, and that's it. Whereas with the uh, soft luggage systems, you'll see the differing materials. And I'll let Don speak to the material choice that we selected, which essentially gives it this skid plate or this crash membrane that allows for many um, pretty aggressive crashes before ever starting to um, put the main carrier or the dry bag at risk. Uh, material selection, again, we're using a, a 1050D, uh, and that's denier ballistic nylon. But the next challenge is then the straps to then mount that harness to the bike. And those, some of them have exposure to high wear, and some of them have exposure to high load. So, Don, talk about what are the straps and the, the material selections we did there. Uh, sure. So on the straps, again, we're using we're using actual Cordura brand for the straps. And the, part of the reason for that is there's a, a certain stiffness. And again, it comes down to yarn. The yarn that Cordura sells is the best in the world. And so you use that on things like the straps because you want that very high load rating. And so I had mentioned the daisy chain earlier. And the for forming what we call the bucket, which is the part your, your main compartment dry bag goes into, we use a double thickness of that Cordura strapping, and then it's double bar tacked down to the daisy chain, which is the main platform that that kind of the har the U-shaped harness that that uh, sags over the bike is the base plate. That's the main structure. It's made from that 1050 that I mentioned earlier. It's made from a 20 ounce uh, tart material, 
as well as part of that membrane Jeremy was talking about earlier, which forms the outside skin and the inside skin, is actually three to four layers thick depending on where you go. So you start with that abrasion resistant skin on the outside. You have a certain measure of foam padding in between the uh, outside skin and the inside tarp material. And then in certain strategic locations, we use a high density polyurethane board as well. And that the goal there, Jim, to clarify is uh, after we've done the protection for uh, abrasion is then to provide the structural uh, integrity so that it makes loading and unloading the, the, the system much more much easier. Right, yes. Rather than having the bag collapse on you as you're reaching in on it. Precisely. Yeah. And, and I want to touch base. We, call, we used to call it our steel, the radial steel belt, but there is no steel in the pannier system. But you can imagine at 125 liters, a guy is able to put a substantial amount of weight into that luggage system. And so when you have one of the pannier systems and you look at that holster, which is essentially the chassis and the two buckets that hold the dry bags, that what we called our... Uh, steel radial belt and the principles comes from a motorcycle tire or a car tire as everyone has tried mounting tires that tire cannot stretch because it has a steel belt or in some applications a teflon belt that's running around the perimeter and that's where it gets all of its strength and so the same works for the top rim of those uh, uh, hoops of the harness and then they're tied into the daisy daisy chain a lot of time and a lot of evolution was spent to accomplish that. And that's what allows us to, you know, there was days where we were mounting uh, 46 pounds of gravel and sand in each one of those uh, dry bags and, and logging hundreds of uh, miles off-road in whooped out sections to truly put this, this steel belt to its absolute maximum. And it's one thing to spec out a very, very strong strap. It's another to how to integrate that strap into the harness to then displace that load. Let's talk about the, the the design of this pannier in particular, because this is really unique, and, and I think it's what really makes this like a, an optimum buy. It's actually more of a holster system, really, in my mind. That's how I see it. And it's so versatile, I think. There's so many things you can do with this. As a matter of fact, if you're by the internet now while you're listening to this, drop by the Altrider website and click on panniers and look at the, the Altrider Hemisphere Waterproof Soft Panniers. That's what we're talking about right now. Don, for those who don't have the benefit of looking at one right now, can you sort of explain this system so that someone can envision what we're talking about? Okay, so... Um... All right, I think I have an idea how to explain it. So if you imagine a saddlebag from the old horse and buggy days where you would take the saddlebag, carry it over your shoulder, slap it onto the back of the horse, and strap it down. This is very similar in concept to that. So you have this kind of U-shape, and you take it, and you throw it over the tail of the bike, and then we have very, uh, very carefully considered mount straps so that you triangulate the stable platform. So you take the two front lower straps and you tie them down, and then you tie down the rear strap, with, which goes to a rack or around the tail. And that gives you this triangulation. So those mount points pull against each other. And that gives you this very solid, non-moving, stable platform on which you can then have all this compartmentalized packing and capacity. So does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that's great. And so now what are we putting into those saddlebags? So you start with the stable platform. That's all on. It's mounted and it's like the saddlebag system. Then you need to be able to carry your uh, your capacitive loads, and essentially what you have are buckets, right? And these buckets are built from the high abrasion resistance nylon, the ballistic nylon, so that when you drop your dry bags into those, you're protecting the dry bag itself. Uh, sorry about the door there. <laughs> um, 
So you drop the dry bag into those buckets and it's protected by that skin. It's it kind of serves as its own protective product. Uh, additionally, down below, you've got the two smaller, um, I think I want to say those are eight liter bags, uh, eight to 10 liters. I, I don't recall off the top of my head. And those are the garage pods which slide in. And a quick note about those I forgot to mention earlier, uh, material selection was important there because this dry bag material, if you try to slide dry bag against dry bag, it binds and it, it doesn't really move freely. And so we actually put a 400 denier nylon uh, of a lighter color inside that garage pod, which receives the dry bag so that when you go to put the thing in, it slides a little more naturally in and it's not, you know, difficult to use. So just to clarify with that garage pod that you're talking about, you've got your bag that's hanging off the bike, and then it's like another bag has been stitched onto the bottom, a smaller bag that has end access, which means you've got a completely separate compartment there. So we were talking earlier about liquids, for instance, which I'm totally against putting liquids into a anything that you're trying to keep waterproof. To me, it makes no sense to put water on the inside when you're trying to keep it out or any liquid on the inside. Mm. So if you wanted to carry water or oil, not only is it external to your your sealed compartment that you want to keep your dry things like your clothes but it's also low down it's it's like so perfectly set up it's got your a lower center of gravity because your your heavy stuff is being put down the bottom that's correct it's absolutely central to the the core weight of the bike keeps it nice and controlled and one thing there jim uh after being in this industry for over 10 years it's very obvious that none of us are professional world travelers. There's only a handful of us who actually do this for a living or for a lifestyle. And as a result, we're horrible travelers, meaning we pack way too much stuff and we don't know how to pack. And you know you're dealing with a smart world traveler, not motorcycle specific, but a smart world traveler when his suitcase opens up and inside there lives anywhere from five to seven pods and he has his underwear in one and he has his shirts in another and he's got his toiletries in another because we know that that suitcase very quickly after day one in the hotel just turns into a hodgepodge and everything's all messed up and i can't find my stuff and so we often are not good packers and so if we encourage by the design from the very beginning to explain and or force people into compartmentalization they're going to have a much more successful uh, packing experience as well. It allows me access to those individual compartments without having to ruffle through the entire suitcase or the entire pannier box. You know, I, I've spent 20 years in tourism and uh, we did adventure tours. So we certainly learned about packing. We certainly, you know, had to go through all those little things of worrying about how much you're taking and, and how you're packing it. And what we used to buy is we would buy just a bag and then you would have to get a bunch of little stuff sacks and try and fit little systems together to do exactly what you're talking about. And I think anyone who's into that has probably went through, you know, the messing around of trying to figure out what little pack can I buy to slide into here. And it never fits perfectly. But you guys have went one step further with this. Yeah. And there was arguments back and forth because, of course, making these very custom, because those lower garage pods, as Don explains, they, I would love to tell you that those are right off the shelf, 10 liter uh, basic dry bags, which would mean we could use existing tooling and the cost would be way down. But if we did that, they would not allow maximum usage of that lower garage because that garage is not a round barrel or a tube. And so those pods are made to exactly contour to the dimensions of that lower garage. You know, Jim, that if you were to put your your tool roll that's something like 12 pounds with all its tools, if you put that in that pannier and it was loose in there, it is going to work like a massive jackhammer. So every time you're going over whoops or bumps, 
that 10 pounds starts to turn into 35 pounds of force as it's slamming back and forth because it is not under compression. So we've got the side straps that create a ton of side uh, compression. And then you see that the dry bags have opposing male and female side buckles so that when I take my side dry bags off, I can still re-secure them and run them independent as a normal dry bag and or even secure them to the side of a ship or a truck that I'm in. But also when they're in the harness, they now not only work to seal the dry bag, but now they get a tremendous amount of compression. You can see that as you as you secure those and draw those down, I now have side compression and compression from down, and I've very much stabilized that load. Yeah, something key to what Jeremy was just explaining is that when you when you you know really torque down on that compression strap, that central one that kind of compresses the whole load, you're not just squeezing the load into itself; you're actually further securing it to the hoop rack because that strap wraps around the base of that hoop. So when you pull it down, you're you're sucking the whole the whole system, that whole pannier side, you're actually sucking it up and tighter to the hoop rack itself. So again, getting the load more centralized and secure, but more importantly, it's not flapping around. It's also compressing. You're not going to get any of that ear flap that you might find on some other units. So now the rider pulls into a hotel and they've got to take their, their bags off. And that's one thing with, with soft bags, if it can be kind of finicky, is that the strapping systems tend to be rather cumbersome to get undone. What do they do with this system? So with the, the pannier systems, each side has three straps to undo to remove the dry bags. And I won't say it's the, the fastest system. And quite frankly, a lot of pannier systems require you to open the lid, undo a nylon locking nut, take your bag out first or whatever stuff in it. Yeah, good point. As well as to then even get access to these mounting points, you've got two of those nylon nuts, and then you've got the very large aluminum puck, which oftentimes a lot of guys can no longer get mechanical advantage to turn that that big aluminum puck. Then you've got to uh, finagle with that to get it to release off of the uh, steel hoop. So we definitely think that the these soft luggages are – uh, a faster unload system to most of the aluminum pannier systems that are on the market. Yeah, and, and like and like I said, in the rain, you know, you'll be doing this in the rain, and, and with the the hard ones, you got to take it the top off and set it aside, start pulling all your stuff out. But the neat thing about this is that being that it's it's got this base that sits there, you're not unstrapping the whole thing off the bike. You're undoing the the few straps, well, like I said, the two side buckles and the, and the middle one, and then you're pulling the bag out and you're taking the bulk of it. I mean, you're all your everything in your top one, you're taking out in your hand. So it makes it very easy in comparison to a bag um, that may just be mounted to the vehicle and uh, you may not want to take it off just because of the strapping system tends to be a, a bit of a pain. So I think there's something really nice. I absolutely love this pocket system and I can't wait to, to actually try one. You also have a bag to go on top. Can you tell us about that, Don? Yeah, sure. So the top case is, uh, it's engineered so that it, it, I mean, it is just a large 30 liter top case, roll down dry bag. And it, just like the two side pods, it's very similar construction, except that it has its own small loop uh, daisy chain of two-inch webbing down the side, and that enables you to run the cam buckle straps around it, as you'll see in any of the photos of the product, and then those secure it to the daisy chain, so locking it down to that, that base plate. When you remove the dry bag, you can actually use those two cam buckle straps as kind of a rudimentary backpack strap. So you could put the thing on and have that on your back while you carry the other two side pods in hand. That way you can take your whole system all off and carry it all at once portage style. Um, and otherwise, it's just it's a very it's a very straightforward, basic uh, a dry bag with some little plastic keepers and large. One of the things we thought about actually is on all the compression straps. 
meaning the the straps where you're uh, you're cinching against those big two inch uh, side release buckles. Those straps all have a large loop, about two and a half to two or two and a half inch loops, so that you can use a gloved finger to uh, to actually you know compress the load. That way, you don't have to take your gloves off every time you use it. So I want to touch base on that real quick, Jim. It seems trivial, but we've all been in the scenario where we cannot get enough grab on the end of the webbing to create the compression that we really want. So we did spend a, 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 a good bit of time coming up with that right size loop so I can get my fingers. So no matter, even if I'm all the way to the extent of the, the, the stretch of that strap, I can then get the compression I need to be able to pull it down. I've definitely myself been in those scenarios where I could not get the strap to compress because I don't have uh, enough material to grab a hold of. You know, and to that point, uh, briefly, there you'll see in a lot of products just around the outdoor world, uh, you, you had mentioned kind of, I'll call them poser products before, backpacks with a lot of additional loops and stuff where they're unnecessary. Uh, if you don't see people uh, in their designs having the ability to get good compression, there's probably a reason for that, and that the material selection, the stitching used, the construction, the whole concept of the construction is just not going to hold up to it. And so... The product that we have, with all of the, uh, uh, the attention to detail in the in the material, raw material selection, the high quality yarns and stuff, allow us to, with confidence, give people the ability to compress the hell out of this thing when they're using it. That's what it's made for. This all sounds so Steve Jobs, you know, being so anal and obsessed with the size of a loop. But it's the type of thing that makes the difference of, of using something and, and probably not thinking about it rather than having to think about it. You know, where you, like right. you're saying, with your gloves on, with your hands cold, because we've all been like that and, and you're trying to do something, it's difficult. You know, I, I think it's neat that you've spent so much time on, on something like that. I love the design. And as well as the you were saying about the garage um, bags with having a different material in there to help them slide in easier. It's those little things that most people probably will have no idea about, not notice, just know that it works really well and really slick. Are there any other advantages to the system, the the holster style setup that you've got? Yeah, two more things, Jim. Uh, I'll keep it tight. But uh, another thing that was substantial that we got from the market research was there are a few systems that had the removable bags, but then it didn't allow for the operator to use that harness empty. So then he was stuck with the situation of I got to load it back up to go on my ride or I have to take the entire harness off, which we talked about that being an advantage that you don't have to take that harness off. So as you look at those side straps, if I were to remove and no longer carry my dry bags, essentially have an empty harness, I now can lock each one of the side straps from right to left, which collapses the, the harness and then use that side strap to now tuck the harness and make it a completely narrow harness and operate that system completely empty. Where that's even more uh, cool to the fact that, or the desire became so great, we now sell the saddlebag, which was the smaller displacement uh, system, empty. So you can buy just the harness. And we have enough uh, dirt bike guys who are using that harness uh, without our dry bag and they carry fuel bladders. So we spend, we're lucky enough to have Cascade Designs here in Seattle and a plethora of research from those guys. You can run the MSR uh, bladders and they'll hold anywhere from two gallon, 1.5, one gallon. And you can now have auxiliary fuel in a very low tucked in location, as well as my, my tools for just day rides because at the seat height, because I no longer have the dry bag, I now have no interference with the entire length of my seat, and I have this great bomber uh, harness system 
that additionally gives me a ton of fatigue relief on those multi-hour rides where as I'm starting to get tired but still standing up, you can actually start to lean back and get a ton of support from your back calves when you're leaning against that saddlebag system. So the functionality of running the thing empty. And when we first launched it last year, um, during some of the development uh, time, we did a 1,800 mile fully unsupported 10 day ride from Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Nevada. And one of the the, the goals every day was water, fuel, and then uh, some way to have a, a fire that night if we were lucky enough because we were getting out in the desert. So we'd oftentimes have to travel quite a bit to gather scrap wood to be able to burn for duration that night. And you know those smaller dirt bikes have no real subframe. It's just a plastic fender back there. So even if you did find large firewood, you didn't have a saw to cut it down. And sometimes what we found was quite large in length, meaning almost five to six feet in length. There's no way we would have been able to ride through that extreme terrain to get back up to the ridge where we were camping. But because we had the saddlebag system, which has those same principles of a stability platform, we were then able to just strap huge pieces of lumber onto these dirt bikes. We've got photographs. It's quite funny um, because it, it it definitely made for a challenge, but to ride with that large of a counterbalances on the back of the bike, but we would have never been able to do it without those harnesses. So um, the harnesses empty themselves have a lot of value proposition. Well, that's one of the first things that popped into my head when I looked at the system. I thought, this is great because this is good without the dry bags. If I decide to buzz down to the store and, and pick up some things unexpectedly or to a friend's house, I've still got a way, a pocket that I can stick these in that's secure, that'll hold it there until I get home. It may not be waterproof, but it'll be it'll be fine to get it home. Oh, yeah. And I'm just now looking at the website and we show the, uh, the 24-pack in both of the systems, meaning because the harnesses themselves drain because they're pockets that then hold the dry bag. So guys have filled them with ice <laughs> and beers and run back to camp with just a 24-pack. So it's kind of a funny but actually valid use for the uh, empty harnesses. Nice. And then lastly, the high-vis. We spend a lot of time to be able to heat transfer the high-vis onto the ballistic. Because the ballistic is quite dense and it's not a flat platform, it was a lot of time spent being able to get the heat transfer to drop in to all those valleys and nooks and still have high resolution so you could read the image as well as not distort the material or the actual high-vis, the, uh, the reflective balls in there. So spend a good bit of time to get that high-vis on there, making you very noticeable from side uh, side. Well, that's an interesting point because you, you don't see high-vis on here. There's nothing that stands out. Like I'm not looking at any sort of white tape or anything that's yep. on here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know what you call it, material. 3M has it. It's a very, very expensive from 3M. And we were able to find a firm out of California that prints these in, in runs of a thousand. And then we have them heat transferred onto the panels. And so uh, during normal daylight, they don't look high vis. And then at night, it's the Starlock or um, I'm trying to think of the name of that uh, very expensive 3M product. But the reflectiveness of them is is amazing. It's actually if you take a picture with a flash, that's about the only thing you end up seeing is just the logo glowing back at you. Yeah, it is white hot. Don and Jeremy, thank you very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio and telling us about your panniers. Hey, Jim, really appreciate your time. Thanks for the interest. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jim. And uh, look forward to talking in the future. My guests today have been Don Hogan and Jeremy LeBreton, both from Alt-Rider. You can find out more about Alt-Rider by visiting their website, www.altrider.com, or drop by our website and check the show notes at www.adventureriderradio.com.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Now, you're going to want to drop back next week, and you don't want to miss an episode because we're starting our suspension episodes next week. We're going to delve deep into adventure motorcycle suspension. You think you don't need to hear it because you got a new bike? Well, you might be in for a big surprise. We're going to find out how to test your suspension, what you should be looking for in an aftermarket suspension, and all the things in between. You're going to learn about oil and pistons and all types of things. Good stuff coming up. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get up there and ride your bike. Ride safe. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Altrider. Altrider is a Seattle-based company manufacturing 100% American-made accessories and gear for adventure touring motorcycles. You can find out more about Altrider by visiting their website, www.altrider.com. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media, and special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. Hi, this is Joe Russ, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, this is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio.